Good morning. Hello, welcome to Dispatch, a weekly podcast from Middle East Eye's Global Newsroom. Today on the show, we're looking at the, what a collapse in Saudi Arabia's oil sector would mean for the country, but also the entire region. We also ask why the coronavirus stats across North Africa appear to be suspiciously low. And the plight of political prisoners in Egypt is under the spotlight once again after the death of a 24-year-old filmmaker. My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined by MEE's Editor-in-Chief David Hurst, MEE North Africa Editor Melanie Mataris, and Associate Professor of Political Science at Long Island University, Dr. Dalia Fahmi. Welcome to you all. Thank you for joining me. One of the biggest economic casualties of the coronavirus pandemic has been the global oil sector, with last month's historic crash of oil prices sending the world economy into panic. More so in oil giants such as Saudi Arabia, where, as David Hurst highlighted in his column last week, the oil and gas sector accounts for 50% of gross domestic product and 70% of export earnings. David, what has happened to that oil revenue now, which underpins so much of how Saudi Arabia functions? Well, it's, it's basically crashed. And the latest sign of that is that Moody's Investors Service cut Saudi Arabia's outlook from stable uh, to negative. It still gives it a sovereign credit rating of A1 um, and says that Saudi's, Saudi Arabia's government's um, balance sheet is still relatively robust, although it adds a kilowatts, albeit deteriorating. It's really the direction of travel that's important with Saudi Arabia. This affects Saudi Arabia in a whole bunch of ways. Um, on, on the ground, in sort of anecdotal evidence, you get an awful lot of evidence of people not being paid the furlough money that the government promised, or 10% of it, uh, as opposed to 60%, which is what the government actually promised. Um, there are all sorts of construction programs that have completely just halted, uh, particularly on this, on this futuristic desert, city in the desert, Neom. That's just stopped. We know that there are, from, from medical sources in, in, in Saudi Arabia, we, we know that Mecca is really affected. Um, something like 70% of the population could be affected by the virus, according to tests that they have done, with, you know, random tests. Um, and Riyadh is affected. So the lockdown, as far as uh, Saudi Arabia is concerned, will, uh, the viruses they predict will peak in June. So A, this is a country struggling to contain the virus. Uh, B, this is a country struggling to contain its finances. Now, as you mentioned, that there has been a plan to diversify Saudi's economy going forward, you know, and a big part of it was uh, Mohammed bin Salman's Vision 2030, which he has invested so much time and political energy into, um, and that has really driven the way Saudi Arabia was preparing for its future and preparing for a future relying not necessarily on oil anymore. Where is that now? Is that, has that project been left to jeopardy? Is it kind of too late um, to be able to really make that shift worthwhile? I, th- I think people have stopped believing that it's actually happening. I mean, it's a good project in the sense of its ambitions. It's absolutely right for Saudi Arabia to wean itself off oil. Um, uh, but the way it's happened and the, just sheer, the gap between the, the vision and the rhetoric and actually what happens on the ground is now too big for outside investors to uh, ignore. So there are two pillars of uh, Vision 2030. One was uh, Aramco, 
that that was to be a uh, a five percent um, uh, sale of Aramco on the foreign stock exchanges. Um, that collapsed when basically uh, Saudi Arabia didn't get the valuation that it thought Aramco deserved, um, and it and it stopped uh, the prospective sale of this five percent uh, of Aramco. And the second pillar of modernisation was uh, Neom. Both of those have halted and uh, and stopped. So, yes, it's it, it remains a project in the sky, uh, a vision, an idea, but reality is now further and further away from it. And what Mohammed bin Salman is basically telling the youth who supported him and still do support him uh, is, by the way, you're going to have to open your wallets. And that is at that point. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a, a political uh, kickback because what um, the vast majority of Saudis are facing is that word, which has now become a dirty word in the West, austerity. And if we are looking at a year or longer of a situation in the region where the oil price continues to remain unstable and Saudi Arabia's reliance on its oil revenue continues to kind of uh, undermine its ability to govern not only itself but its role in the region, what kind of ripple effect then would we see for the rest of the Middle East and the surrounding countries? Well, Saudi Arabia has always been the engine of the Middle East and the Middle East economy. Um, it's always imported huge quantities of foreign workers, particularly from Egypt, but Kuwait, um, so also the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but a lot of the professional engineering uh, medical jobs have gone to um, basically Arab expatriates. Uh, and they are a key source of, hardy, hard, uh, of income. To their own countries, to Egypt, um, to, to, to Kuwait, Jordan in particular, Lebanon, and all of these workers are going to feel the effect of uh, basically not being paid or not working um, in, in a Saudi economy with high levels of uh, unemployment. The other aspect was that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, as indeed any ruler, any past ruler of Saudi Arabia, was always able to buy himself goodwill and influence, um, promising, you know, uh, uh, um, huge figures of money, two hundred billion dollars of money. It, most of these promises never materialised, but they made the promise when there was the last time they did this. This was when there was a, um, a crisis in Jordan, and suddenly the uh, King Salman splashed money out on Jordan. None of the money ever arrived. Before that, it was a coup in Egypt. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia largely, and the UAE, but largely Saudi Arabia financed the military coup in Egypt. They're not going to be able to do any of these things. And that has an effect on Saudi Arabia's uh, influence and its soft power uh, in the region. So one, it will be affected by just the, the, the foreign worker situation in, in Saudi Arabia. But two, it will find its influence in the Arab world diminished by its ability not to pay out uh, big sums of money simply just to uh, uh, buy favour and, and influence. The US is reportedly removing Patriot anti-missile systems and other military assets from Saudi Arabia. Reports suggest President Donald Trump told Mohammed bin Salman that US forces stationed in the kingdom could be withdrawn if Saudi Arabia did not stop flooding the market with cheap crude. We go around and protect other countries and other countries don't respect us like they should. The World Health Organization has repeatedly warned that Africa will likely be the next hotspot for the pandemic to hit. 
and many countries lack the resources and testing to handle it when it comes. In North Africa, the figures on the ground have remained relatively low. Morocco, one of the earliest countries in the region to record the virus, still has only a few thousand cases, with 183 deaths. Algeria, a much larger country, has similar numbers, but it has 500 deaths. Melanie Mataris, if I can turn to you, why are we seeing so few cases of the coronavirus in North Africa? Uh, first, because Morocco, Algeria and Tunisia started the lockdown very early. I remember that the Algerian president asked to close all the schools of the country one day before they were closed in France. And even if the army was deployed in the streets in Morocco and Tunisia, not in Algeria, to make people stay at home, it was not a very constraining lockdown as people could go out in the morning. So there are probably other reasons to explain this situation. One of them is that the age pyramids in the three countries are very different than in Europe. The population is very young. In Algeria, people under 35 years old represent more than 50% of the population, and it's quite the same in the two other countries. And finally, we can imagine that people in these countries are used to fix things by themselves. They know that they can't rely on their governments. So very early, they have managed to sew their own mask, for example. Shop owners did not wait the governments to tell them what to do. They organized the inflow in their shops to protect, to protect themselves. That's really interesting. I think, yeah, especially the point about uh, having much younger populations than much of Europe. I think that'll also be true in a lot of African countries and might change how we see uh, how this pandemic breaks out. Uh, considering that it is, you know, two weeks into Ramadan now, which is usually very vibrant time in the Middle East and across North Africa. How are people living during this time if they can't go out at night, if they can't socialize? I can tell you how it goes in Algeria, but I think it's the same in Morocco and Tunisia. If you consider that Ramadan is a moment for sharing, for spending time visiting your family, for having fun outside your home, especially at night, especially with your families, that means that is a moment where women goes out, uh, women go out a little more. This Ramadan is quite painful. Mosques are closed, and in Algeria, for example, mosques are not only a place to pray, dedicated to religion. They play a big role as public spaces where socializing, where neighbors or parents talk about religion, but also politics and daily life in the neighborhood. Moreover. Ramadan is the time you spend much more money to prepare big meals, to buy the meat you don't buy during the year, to buy expensive products like almonds to make cakes, and at the same time, fruits and vegetables become more and more expensive because of speculation. And North Africa is facing terrible effects of the pandemic, above all because the economies are mainly informal. What it means? It means that Entire homes were all left without income overnight. And I know people in Algeria that just eat one soup and samosas to break the fast 
because I can't afford to buy more food. Yeah, it's definitely having a quite a strange sociological impact on Muslim communities from around the world during this what is usually a very communal time, intensely communal time. Now, when we're talking about Tunisia and Algeria in particular, they've started easing some of those lockdown measures and in, in the recent few days. Is this meaning that the risk of coronavirus outbreak is decreasing or going away in those countries? Of course not. And we already noticed that as the government softened lockdown measures, the figures have started to rise again. In Algeria, the government had decided to reopen many shops for Ramadan, but he has just reversed his decision because it was a rush. In four days, the cases jumped from less than 70 to more than 170. And this morning, on Middle East Eye, we published a piece where it is explained that in Tunisia, passengers agglutinate in taxis and in the subway as before. And it's very difficult to respect social distancing, distancing rules. Uh, you know, a friend of mine in Nigeria told me that for people who live who live on this side of Mediterranean, it's very difficult to have social relations without touch, touching the other, patting someone to the back, kiss him, shouting or whatever. And in the collective subconscious, talking to someone with a distance or with a mask is a form of rudeness. You send him back the image that is dirty or sick. So it's not easy to make people understand the risk is still there, but I think it's not only in North Africa. You know, in France too, it's very difficult to make people follow the instructions. was a clip from a song called Balaha by Egyptian singer Romy Assam. It's highly critical of Egypt's president Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and its singer, who made his name during the 2011 Arab uprisings, now lives in Sweden in exile. The song's author, Galal al-Bahiri, has been jailed in Egypt since, as has the director of its music video, 24-year-old Shadi Habash. Or at least he was. The reason we're speaking about this today is because a few days ago, Habash died in his prison cell. For his part on the song, he was charged with terrorism, spreading false information and fake news, but for two years had been kept in Torah prison in pre-trial detention. Egyptian authorities say Habash died after he mistakenly drank hand sanitizer, thinking it was water. But human rights advocates say Habash is just the latest victim of prisoner abuse and mistreatment in Egypt, a country with estimatedly 60,000 political prisoners behind bars. Dr. Dalia Fahmi is an associate professor of political science at Long Island University. Dr. Fahmi, thank you so much for joining us this morning. What can you tell us about Shadi Habash's case and his death? Shadi Habash, who died on May 2nd, um, was a 24-year-old director and filmmaker. He died in Cairo's Torah prison. He was being illegally held in pretrial detention, um, illegally because he had already passed the maximum time period of being held in pretrial detention. He had been there for over 26 months. Um, he 
was not the first and unfortunately will not be the last. Um, we have seen this pattern of internationally recognized and non-recognized individuals who have been held in pre-trial detention die of medical neglect. Shadi's death was the third in 10 months amongst prisoners of conscience in Tora prison, cell block four. He was preceded by Mustafa Qasim, an Egyptian American, and Omar Adel, a 29-year-old. This is really a glaring indictment of Egypt's justice system, which has over the past seven years routinely deployed pretrial detention and medical neglect to retaliate against critics or opponents of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's government. For over several hours, Shadi's cellmates desperately tried to summon medical help, but were ignored by prison officials. This type of wanton cruelty, ignoring actually letting him die is not exceptional. This has been the pattern of the past few years in Egypt. And without any due process, pretrial detention has been, has been used to leave individuals in appalling conditions that include the deliberate withholding of healthcare, which is what happened to both Shadi and to Mustafa Qasim and Omar Adel. As you mentioned, with those three uh, in particular, just over the last few months, uh, as well as obviously, famously, the death of former Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, who uh, activists say was a lot to do with his condition in prison and his lack of access to health care. Just how bad are these conditions in Egypt's prisons today? Egypt's prison conditions are one of the worst in the world. They have been documented by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International, by Human Rights First, and by Egypt's own internal um, human rights organizations as um, being cramped quarters, denying proper nutrition, denying medical care, denying access to attorneys, denying access to families. And we have seen this since the 2003 Egyptian military coup in Egypt. Um, it, within the first year, there were estimates of 42,000 arrests and prisoners of conscience coming into Egypt's prison system. Since then, there are reports that there are upwards of now 80,000 political prisoners in Egypt. Since 2003, the Egyptian government has to, had to build between 16 and 23 new prisons to accommodate the sheer volume of new prisoners. These are prisoners of conscience. These are prisoner, political prisoners. These are those who have been arrested for saying something against the state. I remember last year when President Abdel Fattah Sisi uh, took part in that, you know, notorious 60 Minutes interview when he was asked about the issue of political prisoners, prisoners of conscience. He said blanket that there were no prisoners of conscience or political prisoners in Egypt. Um, but then we look at that figure, that 40 to 60,000 that a lot of human rights organizations um, that quote, who are these people that are being arrested and why are is the state rounding them up? So according to the Egyptian Center for Economic and Social Rights, they estimate that between July 2013 and May 15, 2014, so really within the first year of um, post-military coup Egypt, um, 42,000 individuals were arrested primarily for being Muslim Brotherhood supporters, for being activists, journalists, and political dissidents of all stripes. It moved away from being simply the arrest and drowning up of Islamists to 
um, anyone who had a voice outside of the mainstreaming of the state. So it moved to secularists and leftists, and then activists, even those who stood with the military coup. And so you see much of the young um, who were part of the pro-military coup, um, wanting the removal of President Morsi, are now all in prison or have been in cycles of detention since 2015. Um, and today, the latest rung we have is the clampdown on artists and journalists, writers, and anyone who actually helps produce content. So people who were um, satirically producing content for Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or, or today TikTok that mocks the situation of everyday life in Egypt are now also being arrested. This week we heard about a, another case of uh, an Egyptian woman named by the name of Marwa Arafa whose husband said that she had disappeared two weeks ago and only to find out that she had shown up uh, this week in pretrial uh, court. Uh, what happens to these Egyptians once they enter into the legal system, once they're accused of something and then brought before a pretrial court, what is the course of action legally? What rights do they have to be able to challenge some of these charges? So again, pretrial detention is a, is a kind of suspended animation where you are basically being presumed guilty before innocent and placed in detention for up to two years, and today is bypassing two years, without being given the opportunity to know the charges against you and actually be able to put forth a defense. So it leaves all of these individuals in suspended animation in prison, where you actually don't have legal rights because they're constantly being renewed against you. And so you can't work within the system because the system is designed at that moment to work against you. What this does and the aim of this is to have a chilling effect on society so that you don't enter into the legal limbo. Um, Marwa was disappeared for two weeks. She's not the first and she's not the last. We know that there have been 1,250 people so far this year who have been disappeared. They have been disappeared either in, in, in prisons or in basements of Egyptian jails. And there is very little information until you actually make your first appearance. And so families have no idea if their mem family members are, are dead or if they're in prison somewhere or if they're being tortured. This kind of psychological chilling effect actually affects society in that no one dares to say anything outside of the state mantra. It leaves them completely silenced in terms of what they can think even about civil society, what they can retweet, what they can post, because the ramifications are so harsh. It's not that you'll be issued a summons, it's that you can be disappeared. You can be stuck in pretrial detention for years and your family for a very long time will either not know where you are or if they do finally know where you are, have very little access to you. Your lawyers will have very little access to you and you can't put together a viable defense when you have not legally been charged. So what's happening today is that you have an entire population sitting in prison who's presumed guilty before innocent. Dr. Dalia Fahmi actually went into a lot more detail 
about the pretrial detention, how that law has changed over the last six years in Egypt to allow for people to, to be in prison for up to two years, as well as the international response and the role that Donald Trump has played in ignoring the large number of American Egyptians in prison, some of whom have died in Egyptian prisons. If you want to hear the entire conversation, you can check out a separate episode that we have just uploaded this week with that full conversation with Dr. Dalia Fahim. We'll leave things here for today. Thank you so much to David Hurst, Melanie Mataris, and Dr. Dalia Fahmi for joining me on this week's episode of Dispatch. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us. Leave us a comment on your thoughts and subscribe. And also give us a cheeky rating. It goes a long way. Of course, you can keep up to date with all of our news coverage throughout the week by heading along to our website at MiddleEastEye.net. And you can find there David's great column about Saudi Arabia's oil woes, as well as all of the work the French team has been doing about Tunisia, about Algeria, and all of North Africa. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week.